Well, hello and welcome to church. It's so good to be here with you guys. And I still keep thinking of that stat, you know, of uh, things that you can do that will add years to your life. And that article my friend sent to me talking about, you know, eating healthy and whatever will add a year or two to your life. Going to a faith community adds 14 years to your life. It's like, man, how can you not have time for church? That's incredible. So uh, anyway, welcome to church. Way to choose to be here on this beautiful Sunday. And uh, special thanks to Grant Allen last week for like an awesome message. Grant is such a talented man. That message was phenomenal. And uh, I'm thankful for his willingness to serve God anywhere, anyhow. When we first moved to this building that we're in in Wheatfield, um, we went from pews and a pipe organ to pretty much all the technology you see here. And I was like, Grant, uh, you got to go onto YouTube and you got to learn all of it. And uh, he did. And our services today and so much of the technological advances that you see both here and in Hebron at all of our churches have been because of his willingness to do whatever it takes. And I'm just so thankful for him. I'm so thankful for this church, all of our leaders, all of our teams. And I just see so many of you guys serving on every level. And I just, it blows me away. Through thick and thin, your steadfast faithfulness is greatly appreciated. I love serving Jesus with this family. And uh, welcome online. Welcome, Jail. Welcome, Hebron. What's up? Love you guys so much. And um, welcome to Mott Wheatfield, of course. This is a place where no one's perfect and everyone's welcome. And no matter how long you've been here, whether it's your first Sunday, whether you've been here your whole life, or it's your first time back in a long time, I want to welcome you to church, and welcome back to the third and penultimate week of our series called Divine Direction. And this is all about finding God's divine direction for our life. We've talked about how God's will is sort of like a bowling lane, right? We've got the divine will that represents one gutter, the moral will that represents another gutter, and then we have the personal will of God that is outlined by those two things, right? And when you don't know the divine will, when you don't know the moral will of God, it's like bowling in a gym with a blindfold with one set of pins going, am I even close? I don't know, right? But as soon as you begin to learn God's divine will, and as soon as you learn his moral will, all of a sudden you can see, man, this is the personal will of God for me. And our key passage is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not depend on your own understanding. Don't seek the personal will of God first. Instead, seek his will, his divine will, his moral will in all you do. And then, and then he will show you which path to take. He'll show you his personal will. And uh, this week, I would like to have a conversation about the divine will of God, because I feel like a lot of us don't really know it. This is what our bowling lane looks like. We know the moral will of God, but we don't know the divine will of God. So basically, we have 180 degrees where we're not really sure, like, is this where I'm supposed to bowl? Like, I don't know. We don't really understand what it looks like. We don't know the big picture of God. We know the rules. We know the morals of God, but that big overarching story, we don't know. And my dad and my mom, early in their Christian faith, ended up taking this class uh, in Pasadena, California that really transformed their life and gave them a very clear perspective on what the divine will of God is. And they spent all of their time raising my brother and I, drilling the divine will of God into us. And the big saying that was basically used at our house was different versions of this. Don't waste your life. Every time we were making choices, the big question was, does this fit into the divine will of God? When you're thinking about, you know, going to college or majoring in this, or you're thinking about taking a gap year in Denver, Colorado, or whatever it might be that we're really debating with my parents about, it is don't waste your life. Really think about the decisions that you're making. My parents drilled this into us, and I really believe that for my brother and I, it was one of the more important things that they did. It's teaching us to really frame everything we do into the greater context of the divine will of God. We learn about the divine will of God, and I want to share it with you today. Now, let's start with zooming out and looking at a big picture of the Bible. The Bible 
is not actually one book. It is 66 books, a library of 66 books bound into one collection. Many people don't know that, but that is the Bible. And uh, each book is different. There's history books, poetry books, uh, books on prophecy. There's four different biographies of the life of Jesus. And the books are kind of all their own thing. Each one was inspired and guided by God, inerrant, and written by 35 different authors over the course of 1,500 years. Kind of remarkable. And here's the amazing part about the Bible is, yes, each book stands alone, but woven throughout the Bible, woven throughout all 66 books of the Bible, there is a unique, greater story that's coherent and makes sense. The problem is that most Christians don't know the greater story of the Bible. We just know the individual books, uh, or not at all. And I want to explain this problem to you using a parable. I think Christians are like flies trying to understand and comprehend an elephant. One fly lands on the tail of the elephant and says, it's very furry, it must be a bear. One lands on the ear of the elephant and says, it's very flappy, it must be a bat. One fly lands on the eye and says, it must be a sea creature because its skin is very wet. One fly lands on the back and says, no, 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 it's a vast mountain plateau, it's not even alive, it's a crazy mountain. In order for the flies to accurately describe the elephant, they need to zoom out and see the greater picture or they'll never understand the elephant. And this is so many Christians with God, isn't it? We try to describe God. We try to follow God. We try to worship God. And yet, we don't see the big picture. Oh, God's loving. I read it in the Gospel of John. No, 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 God is angry. I saw that in the book of Exodus. No, 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 God is full of compassion. I've experienced it myself. No, 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 God wants us to obey his rules. I know it. These are Christians trying to describe God by only knowing the moral will of God without seeing the big picture. And I think so many Christians, because we only know the moral will of God, end up wasting our Christian life, because we don't see the big picture. So I really want to try and crystallize the big picture, the divine will of God for you in your life. I think it's really critical. Here's the big picture of God in a nutshell. God created the world with a system that would lead to wonderful, unending life and a relationship between God and people in the Garden of Eden. We could know God. We could have a relationship with God. We could see God. We could talk to God physically. And Adam and Eve rebelled against that plan that God had that would have been best for them. And ultimately, because of their sin, we can't know God, see God, feel God, or hear God in our life. And that's what sin does. It breaks our relationship with God. And God spends the rest of the story of Scripture fixing this chasm of sin that separates us from God. That's what the whole Bible is about, is God making it so that we can have a relationship with him once more like it was in the Garden of Eden. And uh, really, the heart of this story begins in Genesis chapter 12, where God speaks to a man named Abram. And this is a very famous passage of Scripture. To a Jew, this is the most important passage of Scripture. And this is what it says. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. And then here comes the promise. And it's a two-part promise. This is the first part of the promise. I will make you, Abram, into a great nation. And Abram would ultimately go on to be the father of the Jewish nation. So all Jews descend from this man, Abram, I'm talking about here. I will make you into a great nation. God would fulfill that promise. I will bless you and make you famous. I will, you will be a great blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And then this is the second part of the promise right here. Okay, I'm doing this so that all the families on earth will be blessed through you. And another part of the Bible where God reiterates the promise to Isaac, he actually says, all the nations, and that's critical, all the nations on earth will be blessed through you. And this is the beginning of God saying, I'm going to fix this problem of sin by making a relationship with everybody on earth through you. That's the blessing he's talking about right here. Now, there's a couple of amazing things in here I want to talk about. First off, the oldest copy of Genesis chapter 12 that we have predates the life of Jesus by about 100 years. 
And I want you to understand the context of the time of the oldest copy of the book of Genesis that we have. Um, the Jews were a nothing people in a nowhere land. And when that was written, um, th this was laughable. The idea that the Jews would be a great nation, that was laughable. The idea that the Jews would bless all the families on earth, that was laughable. That was laughable. But today, Muslims, Christians, and Jews all draw their heritage from this man, Abram. So that's kind of remarkable, I mean, to think about. And I mean, has Abram been a blessing to all the families on the earth? Well, slavery as a global practice ended because of Christianity. Racism as an okay thing ended because of Christianity. Women and children have a voice in the world because of Christianity. Science invented one time in human history because of Christianity. Family, like the family unit that we enjoy with father and mother and kids because of Christianity. Hospitals and orphanages because of Christianity. If you've ever been to a hospital, even if you're an atheist, you can thank Jesus for that. Nearly every nation knows Jesus and has a path to a relationship with God because of Christianity. In fact, this is crazy. Two-thirds of the world's population adheres to Abrahamic religion. And it's all because, it's all because God said he was going to do this. And I think that's remarkable. Like, even if you're an atheist, it's like, wow, like that is, I mean, this promise right here that I read to you is actually reiterated five times in Scripture. And it's kind of amazing because when this was written, it was laughable. The earliest copies that we have of the Bible actually, you know, predate the fulfillment of this pretty significantly. And you look at it, it's like, even if you're a skeptic, even if you're an atheist, even if you're a progressive, even if you don't really believe in truth, it's like, man, I, I can't do this, right? Like, the reason why I'm a Christian is because I can't deny facts and science and data and evidence. And I look at this, and I'm like, I'm not superstitious enough to say that the Bible is simply random. Like, this is real. And the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible is all about this promise that I read to you being fulfilled. The Old Testament, which is the first set of books in the Bible, is all about God lifting up the Jewish people, okay? He's, lift, he's turning Abraham's people into a great nation. The New Testament, or the second half of the Bible, is all about the second half of the promise. It's all about all the families on earth being blessed, all the nations. And uh, you can actually see this with Jesus' instructions in the first book of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 28, okay? And this is how the Bible was organized, essentially, into the first half of the promise and the second half of the promise. But Matthew 28... It's the last thing that Jesus says to his disciples. He gives them this or instruction. He says, um, I have been given all authority. That's a lot of authority, all of it. On heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. And this phrasing here is super key. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That language, all the nations, is super specific. And what Jesus is doing, any Jew in the historic era would know that Jesus was referring to that Genesis chapter 12 passage that I just read to you. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm opening up the second half of that promise, okay? I'm giving all people this new mission. I'm opening up this new thing for you. And this is where we live right now. We're in this all the nations phase where everybody who becomes a Christian is here to bring the message of Jesus to all the nations of the earth. Now, the last book in the Bible is called Revelation. It's a book of prophecy. And actually, it actually tells us about the future that hasn't happened yet. And that's kind of cool that we have that. Everybody's like, I want to know the future. It's like, hey, we have a book that has been very consistent about predicting the future, and it happens to have one book that is dedicated to telling us about the future. Revelation chapter 7, it says, After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing in front of the throne before the Lamb. And Lamb is just a fancy word that refers to Jesus. Notice the language right here. Okay, what he's describing, he's saying, look, all this relationship with God is being restored like it was in the Garden of Eden. That blessing, our presence with God that was separated by sin from Adam and Eve, it's restored to the way that it was in the beginning. This is the divine will of God. And it's the overarching narrative of the Bible. God restores relationship between God and people that was broken by sin through Adam and Eve. And that restoration is open and available to all who believe. 
And specifically, it will include people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So this is the whole picture of the divine will of God. God has a plan to bless all the nations of the earth and redeem the world from sin. And our role in this, our role in the divine will of God is bringing the blessing of God to all the nations of the earth. As a Christian, this is marching orders. We don't come to church to just get a better life. We don't come to church to sing songs and whatever. We specifically worship Jesus by telling other people about him. Like that's the prime directive for Christians. And it's a big, big deal. And here's the thing, and this is a big problem, is I think most Christians don't know the divine will of God and most Christians don't live out the divine will of God. And I want to explain to you with a big, long story about why this is the case. And this story is going to go with you. You'll remember it. But uh, as I've said many times before, I try to say as often as possible, pretty much, I went to Wheaton College, which was at the time the finest Christian school in the country on most levels. Really good. My disciplinary record is still available there for you to read if you know my social security number, which you don't. So anyway, I was very excited to be able to go there. And I still remember the day that I got the note about who my roommate would be. And his name was Josiah Schlesman. And I read that name and I thought, 10 bucks says he's homeschooled. That is the most homeschooled name I've ever heard of in my life. And to the surprise of no one, Josiah was in fact homeschooled. Today, Josiah is a major in the United States Army. He is a helicopter pilot and uh, he flies for the special forces. If you ask him what he flies, he will look you in the eye and honestly say, I can't tell you, it's classified. He's a super cool guy. He's done multiple combat tours and uh, he is a, he's just a really cool dude. I'm grateful for you, Josiah. You're an American patriot and uh, we love that you defend our freedom, and also bring the name of Jesus around the world in what you do. He's a super great guy. But anyway, and he's going to be able to retire soon. You guys, I'm getting old. He's going to retire and like not have to work. He only has five years left. It's just crazy. Anyway, um, when I met him, though, he was just an itty-bitty baby freshman. And actually, he wasn't itty-bitty. He was very intimidating, and here's why. He was a homeschooler who had a lot of time on his hands, and he spent all of that time bodybuilding bodybuilding, okay? And it's like, great, you know, that's who you want as a roommate. This dude was shredded, and I mean, he looked like a combination of Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Hulk, and Thor. He was so big, he literally could not itch his shoulders. You know what I mean? Like, uh, uh. He had to use the door frame. Like, I watched him, like, uh, uh. You know, it's like, oh my goodness. Like, you're actually doing that. You're like a bear. You know what I mean? Like, find a car, like, uh, he's huge. Very intimidating, very scary. He was so big, and, uh, you know, He would do protein shakes all day long. Protein shakes are great because they give you big muscles. Protein farts, no bueno. We're a multicultural church, no bueno Spanish for no good, okay? Big drawback as a roommate, you know, who has a bodybuilding roommate is uh, sharing the bathroom. I'm just going to tell you, like, call the police. This is not fit for humans. Anyway, I remember being very intimidated by him. And here's here's a fact. I was like 150 pounds soaking wet freshman year. And uh, this dude was like an inch and a half taller than me, and he was literally 240 pounds. Shredded, not an ounce of fat on him. He was like an upside-down triangle walking everywhere he went. It was just like, oh, was, it was almost comical. He's the most, still to this day, Josiah freshman year, he's the most muscular human being I've ever met on life, in life. And uh, I remember dreading playing sports with him because that's what you do. Christian school, you know, you don't party, you just you play pickup sports all day long. And I'm like, what am I going to do? You know what I mean? Like, I got to play with this guy. Like, he's going to post up on me, and I'm going to, like, back it up, you know, into the ground. Like, what? He looks like Terminator. I remember orientation, we're playing ultimate frisbee and everybody's lined up and it's like skinny dude, skinny dude, skinny dude, Hulk! You know what I mean? Skinny dude, skinny dude. And they're like, I don't want to guard him, you guard him. I'm like, I don't want to guard him. And they're like, he's your roommate, you have to. And I'm like, I'm so scared. His pecs could eat me. But he was, he was profoundly 
not athletic. I remember we kicked off, you know, the Frisbee Ultimate, and he starts running, and it's like, you know, like his muscles are literally punching himself in the face. Like he's just, there's so much extra stuff to carry. I mean, he's running. And uh, listen, he couldn't throw, he couldn't run, he couldn't catch. And later I learned freshman year, since he was my roommate, he also couldn't fight or wrestle. Like, we would wrestle about various important things, you know, usually a bad game of Mario Kart or whatever. And um, it, was, uh, it was just comical because all that strength, and he didn't know how to convert it into real-world action. We spent all that time lifting weights, working out, and getting swole. But the dude could not consistently beat skinny little me wrestling. It was unbelievable. And he looked so huge. And he had these huge muscles, but he had no idea how to use them. Eventually, senior year, he was a pretty normal-looking guy. He was a lot more athletic, but he wasn't huge anymore because, and this is critical, this is critical, he lost interest in working out in that way because it had no pertinence to the real world that he lived in. So here's my big thought. The moral will of God is like bodybuilding. It's like muscle training. It's like whatever, you know, muscle, it's working out, okay? Um, The divine will of God is the thing that we train for. And just knowing the moral will of God is I think kind of discouraging. It's like we get these big, huge muscles and, and we learn the Bible and we go to church and, and we, we live by these rules, but we never actually use them for a greater purpose. And like my roommate, I think we start to lose interest. And here's the thing, for a time, the better health, the better looks, the better Instagram posts or whatever, you know, the moral will of God brings good stuff to our life. It brings improvement, it brings excitement, but over the course of time, we just sort of lose interest. And it's not that we abandon it entirely. It's just we sort of think, you know, I got enough God in my life. You know, you look at your spiritual physique in the mirror, you look at everyone else, you're like, I'm looking good. I don't need to be as engaged anymore. You just sort of lose passion because what's what's the point? And here's the thing about the divine will of God is it works with the moral will of God to provide meaning and direction. Without the divine will of God, the moral will of God does not have meaning and direction. All the training, all the conditioning, all the moral will, it'll feel pointless. And this is exactly how my roommate was in college with his muscles. He worked out, and at the end, he's like, what is the point? Like, I'm huge, but I literally can't itch my shoulders. Like, this is why, you know? People with just the moral will of God will end up with one of two dysfunctions. One of two dysfunctions. And you don't end up with both. You, you end up with either. The first one is uh, you end up super legalistic and mean when you just have the moral will of God. And we call this yellow line faith. Some of you who grew up in churches like this, you know what I'm talking about. I grew up like this. Um, church becomes all about the moral will of God and don't cross that yellow line. Don't cross that yellow line. Don't work on Sundays. Don't have sex before you're married. Don't preach a sermon unless it's this specific kind of sermon. You can only do topical messages in series. You can only do expository verse-by-verse messages. If you don't start the message off explaining who Jesus is and what he did for you, then it doesn't count and whatever. And if you don't end with the blessing of God, may his face shine upon you, may his grace go before you, whatever. The, The rules are not attached to the purpose of God. And in and of themselves, they're super unfulfilling, aren't they? And instead of worshiping God, we worship these rules and we go to church and it's just, it's very unfulfilling because it's super legalistic. The second thing that can happen if you just follow the moral will of God, is uh, you can be super dissatisfied, unfulfilled, and purposeless. And what happens is, is you follow the moral will of God passionately for a little bit. And when you do, your life does get better because God's plan actually does work to lead to a better life on earth most of the time, relationally, on a mental health level, sexually, physically, emotionally, like it leads to a better life. But all new things, earthly, get old. A new car, gets old. A new house gets old. A new job gets old. A new relationship gets old. And you know what? A new faith. A new faith can get old too if it's not attached to the greater divine will of God. How many times have you had the greatest accomplishments of your life not feel that great 10 minutes after the fact? You're sitting at your college graduation. You have the diploma. It's like, eh. You're sitting there. You watch your kids graduate. and It's like, oh, that was fast. 
Olympic gold medalists talk about the disappointment after the win because we were made for a greater purpose. And when you live with just a moral will of God kind of faith, a lot of people just sort of lose interest after a while because the good life that following Jesus can bring on earth is good, but it's not eternal. And it's not the divine purpose that we were made to lead. And here's my big concern. Here's my big concern. As a church, I want us to lead with a steadfast purpose. It's our word for the year. We're not here just to get a better life by following the moral will of God because that's ultimately unfulfilling and we'll miss out on eternal treasure. And I think so often, so often, this church has a tendency, not intentionally, but to get focused on this second issue right here. And we come to church and we lift weights spiritually and we get shredded, we get jacked. We learn all these cool things about the moral will of God that'll upgrade our life, right? I mean, last week, Grant preached this great message about rusty faith. It's like, yeah, no, I learned that, that's great. And, you know, I'm gonna apply that. And, you know, a few months ago, I preached a message about the sin of envy, right? Remember, and we said, that's not my garden. And it's like, oh, that's so great. And that's so helpful. And that's not my garden. I'm gonna use that all the time. And what is that? That's the moral will of God. And it makes your life better for a little bit. You know, rights and responsibility. It's like, okay, and like, here's the marble. I'm gonna put that ball bearing in my pot. I'm gonna remember, I'm not gonna stand up for my rights. I'm gonna take responsibility. And that's great. And what are we doing? We're getting shredded. We got a shredded church, man. You guys look good spiritually. But are we putting all that muscle to work? for the divine will of God? Or are we just a bunch of shredded people sitting here going, eh, eh, you look good. No, you look good. Are we just flexing in front of the mirror all day? Because if we don't actually put that stuff to work, it's gonna get old. And I see this sometimes at our church where you know people come for a little bit and you know there's great passion because every week, I mean, I just can't wait to get here. My life is better and you, know, you join, you make profession and sometimes you get baptized, but, but you don't live out the divine will of God. So what happens? You just, you lose interest after a little while because the divine will of God needs to be linked to the moral will of God to have a sustained faith that's gonna get the pins at the end of the lane. So that begs the question, how do we actually work for God's divine will? How do we put all our muscles to work? And I wrote down three things, three things. First one is rescue people. We're not here to win a game. We are here to save people from eternal separation from God by making disciples of Jesus Christ, right? And I think a lot of times as Christians, we're like, we're, we're, we think we're athletes training for a prize. And like, that's not it at all. We're, we're firefighters stopping fires. We're, we're police heroes stopping murderers. We're saving lives and changing eternities. God is working through us to do these things. Paul continually talks about this. I love the way he puts it in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize, it'll fade away. And he goes, that's, that's a lot of effort for something that you're just gonna have your mom sweep into a roll-off when she turns her bedroom back into her sewing room after you graduate. You know what I mean? Like, but this is what we do. Like, we spend all this time, I gotta earn this trophy, I got a state tournament, blah, 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 all this stuff, right? But, but Paul says, as Christians, we do something that will never fade away. It is literally eternal. So I run with purpose in every step, and this is critical. I'm not just shadow boxing. I'm not just shadow boxing. What did you do? They didn't have a gym back in the day, right? So they would sit there and they'd literally shadow box, right? I'm like clearly not a boxer. Like everybody who actually has fought, it's like, is that, is that how he does it? Like, yep. That's why when people say things to my wife, I'm like, I didn't hear him, honey. I don't know what they're saying. You know, I think you're pretty too. I just, I wouldn't put it that way. Anyway, um, I'm not just shadow boxing, right? I'm fighting for what really matters. He's saying, I'm actually, I'm actually fighting, playing to win. He's talking about sharing his faith. He's saying the moral will of God isn't just living a good life. It's making your marriage a little better, sure. It's making your kids a little better, sure. But it's preparing us so that we can live this great divine calling. And you need both. He's getting these spiritual muscles for a purpose, to reach people, not just to look good and to know a lot. Firefighters, 
They train all the time to fight fires, right? How fulfilled do you think a firefighter would be if every time they saw a fighter, fire, they'd be like, ah, you know what? I don't think I've trained enough. I've been to firefighter seminary. I, I just, I don't know if I'm ready. Like, I think I better call the chief firefighter because I'm just, I'm not ready. I'm just going to run away from that fire. What if I get rejected by that fire? Like, I don't want to do that. Like, I'm going to, you know, and that would be unfulfilling for that firefighter. You know what that firefighter would do? Quit firefighting. And this is what Christians do all the time, isn't it? We train. We're like, yeah, let's get down to business. Let's get ready. I'm going to learn the Bible. I'm going to reach people. And then you see, it's like, ah, somebody called my pastor. Like, I, I'm not ready to do it, right? And we run away. It's unfulfilling. Paul says, hey, no, no, no. If you really want to put your muscles to work, you got to rescue people. You're, and, and here's the second thing. When you put your spiritual muscles to work, it will help you finish the race faithful. 2 Timothy 4, 7. It says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race and I've remained faithful. There's a lot of challenge to our faith today. And if we miss out on the divine will of God, one of the big reasons I think people walk away from their faith or have their faith really struggle and, is because they feel purposeless because they're not attaching all the things that they're doing to the greater divine will of God. That's what my roommate did with his working out. There's little purpose in him having these big muscles and spending hours a day drinking these horrendous protein shakes with like wheatgrass in them. It's like, why? And that's what the Christian walk feels like for so many of us, isn't it? We're working out all the time. We're drinking like spiritual protein shakes with wheatgrass. We're like, that tastes terrible. If there's no purpose to it, it's like, why am I doing this? And this is why Paul calls us to the great divine will of God. It gives us meaning that sustains your faith. He puts his spiritual muscle to work to fight to rescue people. And you know what? Nothing builds my faith more than actually engaging with somebody far from God. Because all of a sudden, I'm like, I need answers to questions. Answers to questions that I've always ignored, right? I mean, do you know why you can trust the Bible? Do you know archaeologically and historically why it's reliable? If a skeptic came to you today and you were trying to win them to Christ and they said, hey, the walls of Jericho didn't really fall. Look at this picture. And how would you respond? This is how the moral will of God and divine will of God work together. I grew up with some great Christian friends. We grew up in an environment that was really helpful. I had a great youth pastor. He spoke into this church. But today, many of us are no longer following Jesus. Grandparents, parents, kids, graduates, friends, wake up. If we're going to finish this race, we can't just sit here putting the things of God into practice. Like, we actually have to live for a greater purpose. Because my parents said so, because my pastor said so, because it's what I've always done, isn't going to hack it forever. Read Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. Read The Case for Christ. Read I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. This one's academic. Mike Schwartz tells me it's like, it's John, it's really academic. Like that one's tough. I love Another Gospel by, um, by Lisa Childers. That one's really good too. But uh, yeah, the third thing, the third thing that we do to put our muscles to work is uh, to earn meaningful rewards. And I think this is a big deal. Paul talks about those rewards that fade away, and then he talks about those eternal rewards, and I like the way he puts it. He says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I remained faithful, and now the prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. Having big muscles doesn't win prizes. Do you know what wins prizes? Winning. Guys, are we playing to win? This is a big question I ask people. I know so many people are like, I love God so much, and you know, God's just making my life better. If all your prayers were answered this week, would anyone become a Christian? I think that's a legitimate question. I mean, people are like, how do I know if I'm living for the divine will of God? Are you praying that heaven would come to earth, that the divine will of God would actually happen? I think so often, when you, your life is limited to the moral will of God, your prayer life is pretty much limited to provision. God, give me stuff. You know, heal my friends and family that are sick, and thanks for this food. And that's like the full extent of the prayer life of a Christian who is devoted to the moral will of God only. And you know what? This is my life. A lot of times, like, I find this question convicting if my prayers were answered this week. Like, am I living? Does my heart bleed for the divine will of God? So often, the answer is no. 
Am I storing up treasure in heaven? I think it's a legit question. Living a moral life is cool on its own, and we should do it, but that treasure isn't going to heaven with us. You know, on an earthly level, God blesses my life, and he makes my marriage better, and all this stuff by following this plan, like it really does work, like conflict resolution, I mean, all these things, but listen, listen, my marriage isn't going with me to heaven. In eternity, I'm not gonna be rejoicing over that, but I will be rejoicing over people who are in heaven because I fought to be a part of God's divine will, and that's the treasure Paul's talking about. This looks like a few different things to me. How do we actually do this? Obviously, sharing my faith. I think one of the big, one, big ones is listening selflessly instead of talking about myself. I had, it's a long story, but I had some representatives from the federal government come and talk with our church the other day. It's a big, long story about how it happened, but they were just very unhappy people who did not like Christians very much. And I said, why don't you come over to my house for dinner? So they did. I made them come over to my house for dinner and uh, we actually had a great time and, and they're like interrupting each other to be able to talk to Kristen and I. They just want to talk so bad about themselves. And it was so interesting. They were so starved to be able to listen to themselves. And at the end, we were able to share Jesus with them a little bit and whatever. And it was a good conversation. And, and they said, hey, this was the best night that we've had in like months. They said, we've never met nice Christians before. And I just think they'd not really met Christians before. And I think this is so much of the divine will of God is inviting people into our lives, into our church, into our families, serving others and loving others like we love ourselves, giving when people need it, forgiving when we're called to, letting go of bitterness, we use our spiritual muscles for the divine will of God to rescue people, to remain faithful, to earn eternal rewards. As I said before, my roommate, Josiah, homeschooled helicopter pilot, special forces, Josiah was huge. I had another roommate, junior and senior year, that also roomed with us, and uh, his name was Daniel. And Daniel was skinny. I mean, he had itty-bitty, teeny-weeny arms. I mean, Daniel was the skinniest guy, maybe to this day I've ever seen. He's 100% Egyptian, and uh, today he is a pediatric critical care doctor um, for Stanford Hospital in California, which is cool, you know. But uh, in college, this dude, like if you had to fight Josiah or you had to fight Daniel, you would pick Daniel in a heartbeat, and you would have made the wrong choice because Daniel was like a crazy spider monkey. Like he would just destroy your life. He would eliminate you. And in every fight, every sport, every game, every contest, every whatever, Daniel found a way to win, like all the time. He would like pinch, twist, hit, kick, scratch in ways you're like, oh, oh my goodness, ow, ow, that's terrible. You have friends like this? Like, how do you do this? Like, you shouldn't be able to do this, but he could just bat way out of his weight. My wife is like Daniel with Bible knowledge. When I met her, uh, as a pastor, I was, I was already, you know, pretty swole spiritually. I've been to seminary, right? I was getting pretty big spiritually. I knew a lot of stuff. She was like barely saved, okay? And uh, she was not church growing up. She never really went. She had no idea who Jesus was. She was like, you know, prom queen, homecoming queen, all that stuff. She's a party girl. She became a Christian like right as I met her. And when, when she first got saved, she didn't know her Bible at all right? I mean, I remember we were married and she was like reading her Bible, you know, regularly in the mornings and she'd be like, John, 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 John. I'd be like, what? 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 So I read my Bible this morning. Did you know that Jesus was in a boat with his disciples and there was this crazy storm and like Jesus just like got up from a nap and told the storm to peace be still and it did. And I'd be like, uh, yeah, I, I've heard that before. And she's like, you know, John, like, wow, John, 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 John. Did you know did you know that Jesus was with like 5,000 people who were super hungry and a boy gave him his like lunchable and Jesus just prayed over it and poof, and everybody was fed. Yeah. Yeah, I heard that before. And she'd be like, you know what I mean? Like her Bible knowledge, it was, it was, you know, whatever. And uh, she saw the difference that Jesus made in her life. 
And I remember we talked about this divine will of God, right? And this thing that my mom and dad taught me, I taught to her and you know, the overarching and God's plan to bless all nations. And this is what we do as Christians. And, I, and she was like, really? And she just started fighting the good fight that Paul talks about. And she made friends, I mean, everywhere we went, you know, her five mile smile, whatever. Her first year following Jesus, she didn't even know the divine will of God until March. But in March of that year, she started sharing her faith. And by the end of that year, she led 17 people to Christ. And today, honestly, it's so many. It's not because she went to seminary. She's not swole. I mean, as a Christian goes, she was like as scrawny as you could get at that time. But she's winning souls. On a spiritual level, she was teeny tiny, but she was a fighter for Christ and his kingdom. She's living out the divine will and the moral will of God together. And the fulfillment that you see in her, and a lot of people you see her, and they're like, oh, Chris is sold the spark. It's amazing. And it's not that she's like great faith. It's not that she's specially gifted. It's just that she's living between the divine and moral will of God. And she's bowling strikes. And I think so many of the people that we really admire, it's not that, oh man, their Bible knowledge is monstrous. Oh man, they've got all this stuff. Oh man, it's just such a, you know what it is? It's, it's just they understand the divine will and the moral will of God and they've chosen to live a life relentlessly focused in between those two things, in the personal will of God. That's what's inspiring. I wanna ask you to take a moment to imagine what you could do with your life. If you really chose to link the moral will of God with the divine purpose that God has for your life. And you said, I'm not just here to get some good things and upgrade my life. I'm here to be a part of this great overarching story that God has. I want my life to be a part of it. I just want to look back 20 years from now after pastoring this church and just see a new generation of young leaders who have transformed the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with missions global and local. I want to see people who don't just memorize scripture and learn the Bible and upgrade their life a little bit. I want to see people who say, I see this God calling me to reach the nations, and so I'm going to do it, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. One of my favorite questions to ask is, um, what do you want your 80th birthday party to look like? I ask this all the time. Have you ever been to my house for dinner? I'm probably going to ask that question. I ask the church it all the time. You know, as you imagine the personal will of God, living between the moral will and the divine will of God, what do you want that to look like? After bowling strikes for decades, what do you really visualize in that? And so many people, they just give me this, like, this answer, like, well, I, I want to have a lot of kids, a lot of grandkids. I want to have a 60 by 40 pole barn full of, like, boats and, and, and deer heads. And, you know, I want to have heated floors, maybe a car lift in it. Wouldn't that, you know, and that's really, that's really, you know, 80th birth. I sit back at that, and, you know, my grandkids ask to use my shop all the time. And I'm like, what a low bar. Come on, that's the limit of your imagination. We serve an eternal God who laid the foundations of the universe as the angels rejoice, and it's kids and grandkids. You know what I want on my 80th birthday? I want to read this passage. I want to read this passage and say that's me. I want to say, I fought the good fight. I finished the race, and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on the day of his return. I want to live for that. Everything in this world is fleeting. But I want to say, look, there is something that will not fade away. I'm not just shadow boxing. I'm running to win. I want legacy, your legacy to be greater than your children and their children. I want it to be greater than the generations of your family. I want it to be thousands of people far from God, filled with life in Christ because of God using you. And I want you to be able to rejoice with them as your treasure in eternity forever. Not just, not just quoting scripture and living a good moral life, but living an eternally focused life linked to the divine will of God, a transformative life that sees generations fall at the feet of Jesus. That's what I want. This was my whole childhood. My parents looking at me saying, don't, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. I have some reflection questions that I want to give to you. 
And uh, these are not discussion questions this week, okay? You don't need to, you can discuss these if you want. It might be helpful if you do. But, but these are questions that I want you to think about right now. And I want you to get serious for a moment. At Hebron, DeMont Wheatfield, I really want you just to reflect. Three questions. Number one, are you wasting your life on eternal perspective? Critical, critical question. There have been years where for me, the answer is yes, I have been wasting my life. And it is heartbreaking, but the best thing I ever did was admit to myself that I don't want to live this way and waste my life any longer. I'm going to change. Number two, do you have treasure in heaven? As a pastor, I don't want to fail you and cause us to live a life where we're not storing up treasure in heaven. I want us to live for more. I want us to live with an eternal mindset. Number three, what can you do this week? So I'm going to start storing up treasure in heaven. Talk with your families about it. Kids, what can we do to reorient our life into the divine will of God? As we close, I want to ask you guys to stand at all of our locations. Hebron, jail, the Mount Wheatfield. Let's have a prayer. God in heaven, today as we study your divine will, we thank you for the purpose, the divine purpose that you've given to us to make disciples of all the nations of the earth. And God, we ask we ask that you would allow us to play a great, marvelous role in your plan to bless all the nations of the earth. God, would you let First Church Wheatfield, First Church Hebron be a part of bringing your gospel to all the nations of the earth? Would you allow us to transform the region with your gospel? And would you give us treasure in heaven, great treasure in heaven, God? Today, we resolve to focus on your divine will for our life and attach the moral will of God to it. God, as families, I just ask that you would bring intensity, passion, and a steadfast faithfulness to each of us. Give it to us. Give us deep faith, deep insight, relentless, steadfast vision, and discipline to live for your great divine purpose in our life. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to sing a song together, and I want you to use this song to really reflect on the divine will of God in your life. Let's sing.